0: Welcome to the second podcast. This is the start of the head and neck section. So these are all uh, labelled as A-H-N and then subsequently numbered. The first of these um, is on the cervical triangles, the fasciae and spaces of the neck. A couple of little housekeeping rules. Um, Firstly, I'd like to thank in the intro music. uh, That comes from uh, the theme music of um, John Mortimer's Rumpole of the Bailey written by Joseph Horwitz, who I think it, uh, in the in his mid nineties is still uh, composing. So uh, many thanks for that uh, intro and outro uh, music. Um, there are secondary um, podcasts which will appear uh, on the history of anatomy and also on relevant. Um, embryology as well. The history ones are HISTs, and these are then numbered, and the embryology are E, and then numbered. So these will appear. I expect to be able to do a history of uh, uh, anatomy uh, podcast perhaps every two weeks, uh, including some of the details of the lives of anatomists, and an embryology uh, podcast uh, about once monthly so that hopefully if we have the head and neck and neuroanatomy with relevant embryology, we can have that covered in the next 12 to 18 months or so, before moving then on to the upper limb and lower limb and thorax, uh, and then moving on to the abdomen, pelvis and back. Um, The additional housekeeping rules that I wanted to add are that... um, there is a supplementary Facebook page which includes the list of references for each one of these podcasts and may include some copies of references as PDFs. That is, uh, in Facebook, as capitals, Anatopod uh, underscore plus. There's also a Twitter site for those uh, who are interested in making comments. Again, at the same address, Anatopod underscore plus, and an Instagram account at the same address for additional images. Um, I think ostensibly we'll probably stick with the um, Facebook um, page as the main one. ...to agree on achieving particular targets of our discussion, even though in areas, for example, like the Autonomic Innovation, there'll be overlapping discussions. And I'll make provision for this in two ways throughout the podcast series. Firstly, along the way, there will be small revision podcasts as interludes to the bulk of the podcast work. A more detailed breakdown of sections pertaining to these podcasts can be found in the relevant section Uh, of an atipod Plus, which, as I have said, is commenced alongside the main podcast, where you can find the references for each section and associated research articles of relevance and interest. In studying the anatomy of the head and neck, both students and teachers alike can often feel at various points, in my opinion, that the issue is becoming really, in a sense, too disconnected, namely that it's just degenerating into a disconnected series of facts and lists. And I'm aiming by small revision podcasts to reiterate and revise certain areas. And equally areas will overlap, such as the component parts of the cervical plexus, the fascial arrangements around the salivary glands, foramina of the skull, branches of the vagus nerve, individual aspects of the cranial nerves, and so on. Secondly, as assiduously as some students may try to avoid it, embryology will come into play, Perhaps no more so than with the head and neck. And as I've said I'll create separate embryological podcasts for this area and we'll see it appear in the formation for example of Meckel's cartilage in the pharyngeal arches, their compartmental nerves and vessels in the anatomy of the styloid apparatus, the hyoid musculature, the muscles of mastication and the branchial arches, The development of the thyroid and parathyroid glands. So these are relevant areas. If we understand the embryology of those regions, then we'll understand their anatomy. I've said it before, but I'll repeat myself that, reiterating the view that if the student knows a little embryology, they actually know quite a lot of anatomy. Rather sadly, as I've said, it doesn't work the other way around. Embryology will be covered separately but don't be either surprised or dismayed if it intermittently pops up in the discussions to reinforce anatomical points and anatomical variations. Now I think that the region is daunting, as I've said, we can deal at least with some of that intimidation, by compartmentalising the head and neck, and I typically do so in broad terms into seven areas. And ideally, at least in my view, if we can master these seven areas, then we can appreciate the fundamental anatomy we need to know and with that information, integrate between those areas. So broadly, we need to cover, one, the triangles and fascia of the neck, by which I mean the division of the neck into an anterior and posterior triangle, and then subdivisions into a digastric, submandibular, submental, carotid, juguloomohyoid or supraclavicular, muscular and occipital triangle. We'll go through these uh, shortly. But we can use this basic classification to examine the suprahyoid and infrahyoid regions in the context of various modified radical neck dissections that are performed for oro, squamous, carcinomas, metastatic to neck lymph nodes. I'll expand on this at the time to assess, for example, level 2a and 2b upper jugular nodes, level 3 mid-jugular nodes, level 4 lower jugular nodes, level 5a and b posterior triangle nodes, and level 6 oro and paratracheal and pre-cricoid, or so-called Delphian nodes. Now the types of neck dissections correlate to our understanding of the anatomy of this region, the fasci and triangles of the neck. And they're then separated into anatomical variants, as a radical or modified radical, or preserving variants, which preserve the sternocleidomastoid and its neurovascular supply, The spinal accessory nerve, which innervates the sternomastoid and trapezius, the internal jugular vein, the great auricular nerve, the transverse cervical vasculature, and variants of these so-called Bocca, B-O-C-C-A, neck dissections, which are sleeve dissections, preserving a lot of these tissues. Now all of these specific structures has clinical significance, as do the skin incisions for such an approach. A number of these are called the McPhee, which is a double parallel incision leaving a, a broad band of skin between a super and inferior incision, the Schobinger incision, for example. But I'll get into all of these areas in a separate podcast as well as attaching a relevant reference in the PDF attachment to these podcasts on our Facebook page. These variations suggest that we have at least a working knowledge ...of the anatomy of the investing layer of deep cervical fascia, at the very least. Now, if we've got the first area, which is really the cervical triangles, the fascia, and the space of the neck... ...the second area that we're going to talk about, which will be AHN2, is the neck viscera. By which I mean really an appreciation of the anatomy and the relations of the parotid gland... ...the submandibular and sublingual salivary glands and the minor salivary glands, the thyroid and the parathyroids. Now, for each of these, we're interested in their basic anatomy, their contours and relations, their fascial sleeves and connections, their vascular supply, lymphatic drainage and innovation, as well as their relevant histology, histopathology, the anatomy of a surgical approach to their extirpation, their removal, specific complications that may have an anatomical basis associated with their surgery, and their removal, of course, and to the dread of some, the important and relevant aspects of their embryology. Each one of those neck viscera has each of those particular components, the arterial supply, the venous drainage, the lymphatic drainage, and so forth, and so on. The thyroid and parathyroid, in particular, lend themselves to a discussion of anatomical variations. And so, therefore, to recap for all viscera, we discuss the basic anatomy and relations, the fascial attachments and capsules, the arterial supply and venous drainage, the lymphatic drainage, the somatic and autonomic nerve supply, and the relevant adjacent nerves in exposure or excision, anatomical variations, histology, histopathology, embryology. Hopefully with that approach, we don't miss out any of the important bullet points. Now, The third area, uh, we may change the order of these a little bit, but the third area is the vasculature of the head and neck. And by this I mean a discussion of the common carotid artery in the neck, the external carotid artery, and the internal carotid artery. The ECA and its branches is, of course, a favourite question of anatomists in exams, in any exams, really, whether they're undergraduate or postgraduate. But we include in this area the vertebral artery, the basic arrangement of the circle of Willis, and the basilar artery. And if you want to m- know more about Thomas Willis, then you can listen to the history of anatomy podcasts, which accompany these uh, podcasts that we're doing here. On the venous side, we assess the internal jugular vein, the external jugular vein, and its formation, of the part of the anterior and posterior aspects of the retromandibular vein, and the venous drainage of the face. The individual branches of the ECA are discussed in this podcast, along with a discussion of the maxillary artery and its ramifications. Now, there are separate podcasts to which you'll be directed here, which cover the infratemporal and the pterygopalatine fossae and their anatomical and clinical significance. So even though we're talking about broad areas, there are special little podcasts which will supplement these. And these podcasts will reinforce points already made in some instances and will overlap with, for example, the podcast on skull for and also the separate podcasts on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. There'll be a separate podcast concerning the vasculature which assesses the venous sinuses, the dural sinuses and the emissary veins of the skull, as well as a short discussion, really, on CSF flow and dynamics. The next area, or the fourth area, is the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. The four parasympathetic ganglia, the ciliary, the submandibular, the pterygopalatine and the otic, are all considered in some detail, along with the broad sympathetic layout in the head and neck. These ganglia are relay stations, obviously only for synapse of parasympathetic function, which is what we call secretomotor or pseudo, sudomotor motor, which is the same thing. But the ganglia are also relay stations for sensory routes, even motor routes in the case of the pterygopalatine ganglion, and um, for sympathetic routes. They don't synapse in the ganglia, they just use it as a relay station. And the relay of the autonomic nervous system and other components of the cranial nerves are considered, including the relay cell types and the organisation of specific cells within the brain stem. The next area, the fifth area, is the pharynx, the larynx, the paranasal sinuses, the nose, the palate and palatal musculature. That's quite uh, a collection of stuff, but it's a specific area to master. The sixth area is the orbit, the nature of orbital fractures and their clinical relevance from an anatomical point of view the uh, action of the extraocular muscles and associated extraocular palsies, the nasolacrimal apparatus, and basic ocular structure. And then finally we've got the seventh area, which is the cranial nerves. And that includes, again, a recap of the skull foraminae, the skull structure, division into an anterior, middle, and posterior cranial fossa, and then skull ossification, something about also the neonatal and fetal skull. Now posted with this introductory podcast is a separate layout of the material to be covered in this syllabus. Students will see that there'll be separate small podcasts covering all of these topics which aren't actually covered in that seven broad areas outlined, such as the layout and the musculature of the face, the structure of the scalp, the anatomical basis of fractures of the middle third of the face, the temporomandibular joint or TMJ, the tongue, the styloid apparatus, the thoracic duct and lymphatics, pituitary gland, the hypothesis, the cervical vertebra, and so on. And each of these add-ons will have separate discussions, separate little podcasts. In all anatomy podcasts will be preceded, as I've said before, by the code A, with H and N as A-H-N. And A-H-N podcasts are then labelled and numbered. The introductory podcast, as you know, is A-1. The upper limb will be known as AUL, the lower limb as ALL, the thorax, including the heart, mediastinum, and lungs, as AT, the abdomen as AAB, the pelvis as AP, and the back as AB. All of these are then numbered accordingly, depending on where you are within the series. As I've said before, I'm reiterating myself, but we're just trying to get the housekeeping rules through that all history of anatomy podcasts will be labelled as. H-I-S-T, and are then numbered in sequence. All embryology podcasts will be labelled as E and then numbered in sequence. An intermittent list of these and support material is posted on the Facebook site. So, let's begin. So, uh, we'll continue with triangles of the neck. In general, the division into anterior and posterior triangles is for the purpose of description of a neck lump, as well as for organisation of a radical neck dissection of lymph nodes. The broadest assessment of lumps is location-based, although of course this size and consistency fluctuates a range of parameters. The common lumps, for example the thyroid, is, given its shape, its movement with swelling, and of course its locale relatively obvious. The posterior triangle, for example, has few masses, mostly lymph nodes from lymphoma or, in children, rubella, the neck is limited by the inferior margin of the mandible down to the superior border of the clavicle with extension from the midline to the border posteriorly of the trapezius muscle. The fascia of the chest which extends in the infraclavicular space as the clavipecral fascia splits around the clavicle and then runs into the neck splitting around the trapezius posteriorly and the sternocleidomastoid anteriorly as the so-called investing layer of deep cervical fascia. That fascia then runs past the angle of the mandible and it extends to the mastoid process in a complex manner, splitting around the substance of the parotid gland as the parotid fascia and also, more inferiorly, around the submandibular gland, uh, more loosely uh, as the submandibular fascia, the two being um, joined together by a so-called stylomandibular mandibular ligament. The anterior triangle of the neck is bound by the midline and extends to the anterior border of the margin of the sternocleidomastoid. That triangle uh, is a little simplistic, so it is subdivided into three paired triangles, the submandibular or digastric triangle, the carotid and the muscular triangles, and one unpaired triangle, the submental triangle. Now, uh, there's uh, an image uh, on both the Instagram and uh, Facebook supporting sites for that. <coughs> These divisions are created by the trajectory also of uh, the omohyoid muscle, which runs across the posterior triangle of the neck and which attaches the lower lateral border of the hyoid bone, running backwards in its own fascial sleeve across the posterior triangle and continuing as the inferior belly of the omohyoid to insert into the upper part of the scapula just lateral to the suprascapular notch the presence of that omohyoid muscle subdivides therefore the anterior and posterior neck triangles so we start with the submandibular or digastric triangle the anterior and the posterior borders of this triangle are the anterior and the posterior bellies of the digastric muscle with the base being the inferior border of the mandible the floor of this triangle is formed by the mylohyoid muscle, which attaches inferiorly onto the mandible in front and more superiorly at its back end, along the mylohyoid line, which is a long ridge inside the ramus of the mandible. And these points create a particular complexity. The simpler aspect of this is that the mylohyoid forms an oral diaphragm. By running downwards, forwards and medially, to join to its fellow on the opposite side as a fibrous raphae, which extends from the symphysis menti um, down to the top of the body of the hyoid bone. And the effect is the creation of a diaphragma oris, very similar to the disposition of the levator ani, or pelvic diaphragm, in the pelvis. It's a muscle running downwards, forwards, and medially. The other point here is that our appreciation of the embryology of this triangle is the name of the digastric, which is essentially a misnomer. It looks like two bellies of the one muscle and has been labelled as the anterior and posterior belly of the digastric. The anterior belly of the digastric is a small muscle that develops in front of the mylohyoid with the muscles of the first branchial arch and which along with the mylohyoid, is innervated by the nerve to the mylohyoid part of the motor innervation of the mandibular division of the trigeminal nerve, what we call V3. The little muscle, the anterior belly of the digastric, which inserts into a small depression on the lower margin of the mandible, the so-called digastric fossa, sits on top of the myelohyoid. It doesn't actually get a Guernsey, as we say, in its nerve supply. The nerve is called the nerve to the myelohyoid, not the nerve to the anterior belly of digastric. Now the posterior belly of the digastric is something entirely different and that inserts into the base of the mastoid process and it's tied into the muscles of the second branchial arch whose compartmental nerve is the facial nerve and which as a muscle is combined with other muscles in the region innervated with the facial nerve and that includes the small stylohyoid muscle which splits around the posterior belly of the digastric. Now as a consequence the anterior and the posterior bellies are two parts of the same muscle but fundamentally different parts of the branchial arch formation both the first and the second arch and so the first arch has its compartmental nerve the mandibular nerve or V3 the second arch the facial nerve and they're consequently not part of the same muscle at all explaining why they have discreetly different nerve supplies. Moreover, the difference in the orientation of the mylohyoid the anterior and inferior attachment versus a posterior and superior mandibular attachment, means that an infection within the wisdom tooth, for example, can spread below the mylohyoid and into the submandibular space. Infections confined to the mylohyoid space represent a great risk, or a greater risk certainly to occlusion of the airway in Infections, which are referred to typically as Ludwig's angina, first described by Wilhelm Friedrich von Ludwig, who was a, a German physician, describing it in about 1836. Within this triangle are the marginal mandibular branch of the facial nerve, the facial and the lingual arteries, the submandibular gland, the nerve to mylohyoid, the hypoglossal nerve, or 12th cranial nerve, and the lower pole of the parotid gland, Those are the contents of the digastric triangle. The surgical point of relevance is, of course, here in how submandibular gland excision is performed. And we discuss that later in the um, next head and neck podcast on the neck viscera. And this gland, the submandibular gland, is removed either for stones and, less commonly, for tumours. And it takes account of the fact that the marginal mandibular division of the seventh nerve lies above a point about two centimetres below the mandibular margin. So if the incision is drawn down directly onto the fascia of the submandibular gland, which is the investing layer of deep cervical fascia overlying the gland, and that layer is then reflected upwards, then that nerve, the marginal mandibular division of the facial nerve, uh, effectively cannot be injured, or at least it's well protected. Um, i provided a separate article reference on this uh, in the Facebook anatopod uh, site, and uh, that's by Davies and Ravi Chandran on the evaluation of clinically relevant landmarks of the marginal mandibular branch of the facial nerve, a three-dimensional study with application to avoiding facial nerve palsy. Now, within this submandibular or digastric triangle, there is also a further subdivision if you're drawing these in your own personal study, you can just draw in the main landmarks, the lower border of the mandible, the posterior free border of the mylohyoid, and the twelfth nerve, or hypoglossal nerve, running on the surface of the hyoglossus muscle, which is deep to the mylohyoid. We had the mylohyoid running downwards, forwards, and medially. If you pull that forward, the free border of mylohyoid, you see the hyoglossus running in the opposite direction, upwards and medially. Uh, with the uh, hypoglossal nerve on its surface low down. For clarity, as I've said, I've included a simple schematic of this uh, in our uh, support Facebook site. Lesser's triangle, L-E-S-S-E-R apostrophe S, also called the lingual triangle and named for the German surgeon Ladislas Lesser, 1846 to 1925, is a small triangle bounded by the anterior and posterior bellies of the digastric, and the hypoglossal nerve. So these are little uh, minute kind of surgical triangle that could be added as a subdivision of the digastric triangle. Again these little extra triangles are included on the Facebook site. The triangle marks this lesser triangle marks the lingual artery with the floor of the triangle being the hyoglossus muscle and the lingual artery of course deep to that particular muscle. So normally the hyoglossus has running on its surface high up the lingual nerve and the submandibular ganglion, low down the hypoglossal nerve, and then deep to its surface, deep to the hyoglossus, is the lingual artery and the deep lingual vein. If the triangle is poorly formed or even absent, that is lesser's triangle, which occurs in about 10% of cases, then the hypoglossal nerve courses lower than normal and is actually well below the digastric muscle. There's another triangle in this region called Pirogov's triangle, which is also called by some the hypoglossal triangle or Pino's triangle, P-I-N-A-U-D apostrophe S. And that's named for the Russian surgeon, actually, Nikolai Pirogov. It's bound by the 12th nerve superiorly, the intermediate tendon of the digastric inferiorly, (coughs) and in from the free posterior border of the myelohyoid. So these are little kind of surgical subdivisions This little triangle is really just the posterior part, actually, of Lesser's triangle. And it's the landmark for a microvascular facial artery anastomosis, if that needed to be done. It's looking for the kind of surface anatomical marking of the facial artery. Again, on both sides of the hyoglossus muscle, as I've said, lies the twelfth nerve superficially and the lingual artery deeply. There's another little triangle called Beclar's triangle, B-E-C-L-A-R-D apostrophe S, named after the French anatomist Pierre Béclat, to 1785-1825, and that's bound by the posterior belly of the digastric, the posterior border of the hyoglossus muscle, and the greater horn of the hyoid bone. So there are all these little subdivisions which exist, and uh, as I say, you can check these uh, triangles out uh, visually on the Facebook site. Now the second triangle, beyond the digastric, that we want to talk about, is then the carotid triangle. The carotid triangle is bordered by the posterior belly of the digastric, the superior belly of the omohyoid, and the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid. The floor of that triangle includes the hyoglossus, from above downwards, the thyrohyoid muscle, and the pharyngeal constrictor muscles, both the inferior and the middle constrictor. The bottom end of that triangle uh, has the carotid Tubicle, which is the anterior tubercle of C6, which is called Chassignac's tubicle, C-H-A-S-A-I-G-M-A-C apostrophe S. That's the anterior tubercle of C6, where the common carotid artery can be palpated. And that triangle, the carotid triangle, includes the common carotid and is at the level of C4-5, typically the carotid bifurcation. That's important because on occasion the bifurcation is overly high. If someone's trying to get access to the internal carotid artery to do an internal carotid endarterectomy, this bifurcation can be very high and that can make access in a carotid endarterectomy particularly difficult since the clamp on the ICA becomes very difficult to accurately place. In this case, if the artery does bifurcate higher than the C45 level, then this can be approached by dividing the posterior belly of the digastric or expanding the space against the side of the pharynx by blindly pushing and actually fracturing the styloid process and its styloid musculature apparatus. The only other way of getting into this space is actually by partially dislocating or subluxing the temporomandibular joint on that side and that provides some additional space. The branches of the ECA in this triangle, the carotid triangle, include the superior thyroid, the lingual artery and the facial artery, and posteriorly the occipital artery. There is also an ascending pharyngeal artery, which by some is regarded as the first branch of the ECA uh, more than the superior thyroid artery, and that comes off the inner border of the ECA running against the uh, constrictor. The hypoglossal nerve travels directly across the bifurcation of the common carotid artery at this level with its component parts of the ansa cervicalis, which is part of the cervical plexus, which innervates the infrahyoid muscles, the thyrohyoid, the sternohyoid, the sternothyroid, and the omohyoid, and which also carries fibers from C1, which join up with the 12th nerve to um, innovate the geneohyoid muscle, as well as the thyrohyoid. But the external laryngeal branch and the internal laryngeal branch of a nerve called the superior laryngeal nerve, which is a branch of the vagus, uh, are in this triangle as well. And these are both identified arising from the vagus medial to the external carotid artery and just below the level of the hyoid bone. The external laryngeal nerve is discussed uh, in the next podcast on the neck viscera in the anatomy of the thyroid and the internal laryngeal nerve is considered there as well but also later in a podcast on the larynx. Finally in the carotid triangle there is even a separate small triangle which I've included as a diagram on the Facebook site so-called Farabeuf's triangle it's a subdivision uh, F-A-R-A-B-E-U-F apostrophe named for the French surgeon Louis Hubert Farabeuf, 1841 to 1910. Now that includes the boundaries, the internal jugular vein, the common facial vein and the hypoglossal nerve so that the base of this little triangle is directed superiorly. The relationship of the common facial vein can thus be either above or below the common carotid bifurcation and that often has to be ligated at an internal carotid endarterectomy. It's also the point of location of a so-called jugulodigastric node, which uh, sometimes appears secondary to a carcinoma of the palate or palatine tonsil, as well as a point to expose the uh, internal jugular vein um, in a radical neck dissection. And I've added an article on that. Diagrams of these triangles are included uh, in the additional Facebook account and Instagram account. The third triangle is the muscular triangle. The anterior border of this triangle is the midline from the hyoid bone down to the sternum. The posterior border is the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid. And the posterosuperior border is the superior belly of the omohyoid muscle. Now, that triangle is called the muscular triangle, but it really only includes the infrahyoid muscles, the sternohyoid, which is a rather round muscle at the front, the sternothyroid, which is a, a sort of um, thinner, deeper, flatter muscle, and then the omohyoid more laterally. Above that is the thyrohyoid muscle, more superiorly. In this particular triangle, obviously this is part of the thyroid uh, tissue and exposure as well. So we've got the superior thyroid artery, we have the anterior jugular veins, and often a connecting vein between both sides called the jugular arch, Connecting both the anterior jugular veins, the inferior thyroid veins. They're all located in that muscular triangle, as are some small branches of the ansa cervicalis. Now, these veins are important as they're sometimes in the way of doing a tracheostomy, which can occasion need to be an emergency procedure. There are nodes in this triangle, which include the anterior cervical, infrahyoid, prelaryngeal, thyroid so-called delphian or delphic node, pre-tracheal and paratracheal nodes. These are uh, not particularly well defined as separable entities, but they have separable names in a sense. Um, and um, they um, are identifiable, but not particularly positionally named. The most medial part of this triangle includes the cervical trachea, the cervical esophagus, the thyroid gland, and part of the larynx. And the artery of this region, which supplies the um, tracheoesophageal enlarge, if you like, is the inferior thyroid artery. Uh, Again, tracheostomy, thyroidectomy are really the dissection of this muscular triangle. Um, And I've included a little article on tracheostomy, indications, techniques, and outcomes. The next triangle is the submental triangle. That's an unpaired triangle at the floor of the mouth, bounded by the anterior bellies of the digastric on both sides and by the body of the hyoid bone. The floor is the floor of the mouth, as already mentioned, the myelohyoid muscle, and it contains the submental group of lymph nodes which drain the mental region, the apex of the tongue, where carcinomas, particularly at the tip of the tongue, can drain bilaterally to submental nodes, as does the lower lip and the incisor teeth. The anterior jugular veins form in this area and there's a submental branch of the facial artery that runs across that area and traverses the region. If the anterior belly of the digastric is vestigial or absent, then infections of the central and or the lateral incisor teeth can sometimes drain directly into this region across the mentalis muscle. The next is the posterior triangle of the neck in broad terms. This triangle is (coughs) broadly bound by the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid anteriorly, the anterior border of the trapezius muscle posteriorly, and the middle third of the clavicle inferiorly. So it's a big triangle. The floor is made of the prevertebral muscles, and the area is covered by the investing layer of the deep cervical fascia. From below upwards, if we're looking at the muscles, a range of muscles can be seen, including the scalenus anterior, the levator scapulae, the splenius, and very high in the upper quadrant, the semispinalis capitis. That triangle is subdivided itself into the occipital and the supraclavicular triangles, with the latter also called the subclavian or sometimes omoclavicular triangle. The divider, as we've said already, is the omohyoid muscle. And that triangle contains, this is the posterior triangle, the accessory nerve, the 11th cranial nerve, the inferior deep transverse cervical nodes, the suprascapular and subclavian arteries, and the external jugular vein, as well as importantly, the accessory nerve, the great auricular nerve, the transverse cervical nerve, the suprascapular nerves, which divide into medial, intermediate, and lateral branches. So all the sensory components of the cervical plexus there, and the branches of the thyrocervical trunk, which is the branch of the first portion of the subclavian artery, which includes the transverse cervical artery, the inferior thyroid, which we've said is the main blood supply to the cervical trachea and esophagus, and also the posteriorly running suprascapular artery. The inferior thyroid artery is the compartmental artery, the principal blood supply of the cervical trachea and esophagus, and that's of relevance, obviously, in some kind of esophageal pull-up and anastomosis. (coughs) Biopsy of a posterior triangle node used to be, uh, prior to fine needle aspiration cytology, a relatively common procedure, and uh, at risk, obviously, was injuring the spinal accessory nerve. The landmark for this nerve in the posterior triangle is that it runs under the investing layer of deep cervical fascia from the junction of the top third and the lower two thirds of the sternocleidomastoid to the lower third and the upper two thirds of the trapezius. In a 3D context, it runs in the line from the tip of the mastoid to the tip of the shoulder, or about five centimetres below the tip of the mastoid process. There's a little article that I've included On an anatomic based approach to iatrogenic spinal accessory nerve injury in the posterior cervical triangle, how to avoid and treat it by uh, um, Sesmabasi. And I've included some additional um, uh, lectures on the spinal, uh, additional uh, papers on the spinal accessory nerve for those who are interested. Anatomical structures in this area obviously include the common facial vein and draining into the internal jugular vein and its tributaries, the middle thyroid vein, drains directly into the IJV as does the superior thyroid vein, as I've said already, the accessory nerve, the transverse cervical nerve and bits of the ansa cervicalis. The junction of the middle thyroid vein into the IJV is actually the very first thing that needs to be ligated so that a thyroid lobe can be mobilised during a thyroidectomy. So this is part of that particular triangle. As I've said before, the posterior triangle is divided into the occipital triangle and the supraclavicular triangle. The occipital triangle, that's in the superior part of the posterior triangle, the inferior border as the inferior belly of the omohyoid, The floor the prevertebral muscles that we've already spoken about, and that includes the levator scapulae, the splenius, and very high up the semispinalis capitis, and more inferiorly the scalenus posterior and medius. The accessory nerve runs on the surface of the levator scapulae, with cutaneous and muscular branches of the cervical plexus appearing like the spokes of a wheel as they come out from the back of the middle of the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid at what's called Herb's point. Now, that's also the point where the C5 and 6 trunks join to form the upper trunk of the brachial plexus. So, that's also the place where these divide into anterior and posterior divisions of the upper trunk and the takeoff point of the suprascapular nerve and the nerve to subclavius. So, we remember that the brachial plexus, which we're not considering at the moment, comes out as roots and then trunks and then divisions, usually in a retroclavicular position, and ultimately taking up positions as cords, lateral, medial, and posterior, because of their relationship to the second portion of the axillary artery. That's for later on. The spokes of Herb's point (coughs) create effectively, like the spokes of a wheel, if you like, cutaneous branches of the cervical plexus. So you've got the rather large supraclavicular nerve running inferiorly, as I say, dividing into medial, intermediate, and lateral, and uh, large nerves that cover over the front of the chest wall down to the sternal angle, over the side and back of the shoulder, right down to the uh, spine of the scapula, the so-called cape area of the neck. There's also the transverse cervical nerve in this region, which covers a broad area between the symphysis menti and the suprasternal notch, covering the medial aspect of the neck. The great auricular nerve, which covers the skin over the angle of the mandible and part of the auricle, and the lesser occipital nerve, the area in a retroauricular position. So these are like, as I've said, the spokes of a wheel from the cervical plexus. This little point actually was described by Wilhelm Erb, who used electrical stimulation experiments. And I've included this also diagrammatically as it applies to this podcast. The other structures located in this triangle include the transverse cervical vessels, as we mentioned, and the upper part of the brachial plexus, as I've also briefly mentioned. The nodes here are the accessory nodes and the inferior deep lateral cervical nodes, which hug the posterior margin of the sternocleidomastoid. The supraclavicular triangle. This triangle is also a subdivision of the posterior triangle, and it is, as it's described, the so-called jugular homohyoid triangle, has relevance in vascular trauma, of course, as well as in subclavian vascular disease, and supraclavicular lymph nodes, which can be a sign of metastatic cancer, the so-called Virchow's node, or Troisier's sign, appear in that region on the left. And in this case, the superior border of the inferior margin of the inferior belly of the homohyoid, is, is the main upper margin of this triangle, and that's the same as the supraclavicular fossa. The area contains the subclavian artery and vein and the supraclavicular brachial plexus before it becomes anterior and posterior divisions. And that includes also the end of the external jugular vein entering the subclavian vein and posteriorly the suprascapular vessels. In the depth of this triangle is the phrenic nerve, which is the motor component of the cervical plexus, and that passes behind the prevertebral fascia from the lateral to the medial aspect of the scalenus anterior in the base of this triangle. Importantly, this triangle may contain also an accessory phrenic nerve, which can run anteriorly near the subclavian vein, even sometimes through the subclavian vein, and this can arise from the ansa cervicalis, or from the nerve to subclavius, and I've added a little article on the origin and prevalence of the accessory phrenic nerve by Graves. The accessory phrenic nerve typically lies lateral to the phrenic nerve, and somewhat posteriorly, but it can run, as I've said, in front of the subclavian vein, and it can be injured during subclavian vein puncture. It will, when present, usually communicate with the main phrenic nerve in the thorax. The nodes also, the supraclavicular triangle, drain the inferior larynx, the thyroid gland, and even the back of the scalp as what are known as the inferior deep cervical nodes. The presence of the Virchow node may be a sign, obviously, of a central node from intra cancer, particularly stomach and pancreas, but also the lung and the esophagus and sometimes the ovary. And the supraclavicular triangle can be a site for diseases even of the scalp, neck, pectoral, brachial areas, as well as a relay station from the mediastinum, diaphragm, even the parotid and breast. So this area actually, as a watershed area where a node may present, uh, actually covers a massive area. On the back is the suboccipital triangle. The back of the neck, deep to the trapezius, lies this triangle, which is bounded by the superior oblique arising from the arch of the atlas and inserting into the inferior nuchal line on the occiput and the inferior oblique muscles which originates from the spinous process of the axis and inserts into the transverse process of the atlas. The triangle is completed by a muscle called the rectus capitus posterior major and that arises from the spinous process of C2 the axis and inserts under the superior oblique a little bit more laterally into the inferior nuchal line. Um, I've included that as a diagram on the support site. The floor of the triangle is the posterior arch of the atlas and the posterior atlanto-occipital membrane, and that includes the third segment of the vertebral artery, the vertebral venous plexus, and the suboccipital nerve. And more superficially, of course, is the greater occipital nerve, which is the dorsal primary ramus of C2 and the thickest cutaneous nerve in the body. This area will be covered again um, later on, uh, but it forms the sub occipital triangle. There's equally in the front, medially, the triangle of the vertebral artery. And the boundaries of that triangle are the medial border of the anterior scalene muscle, or scalenus anterior the lateral border of the longest services muscle and the first part of the subclavian artery which forms the root of that triangle. And that's also shown in a schematic image which is attached to the relevant part of the podcast on the Facebook site and Instagram site. It is an approach site, uh, this vertebral triangle, uh, directly obviously for the vertebral artery and vertebral basilar insufficiency. The apex of the triangle is the anterior tubicle of C6, which we've already met before, a chassinax tubicle. And this is a deeply located area in the root of the neck, which includes the vertebral artery and just laterally the C8 ventral ramus of the uh, brachial plexus. The inferior thyroid artery, which is, as I've said, the compartmental artery of the cervical esophagus and trachea is included here as is the C7 ventral ramus, the phrenic nerve, the middle and the inferior cervical sympathetic ganglia, the vertebral ganglion, which is basically a sympathetic trunk over the top of the vertebral artery, and the cervicothoracic or so-called stellate ganglion when they're fused, that's the inferior cervical and first thoracic ganglion. And they're all in that area of the vertebral triangle. After arising from the first part of the subclavian artery, the vertebral artery travels superiorly through the region at T1 by passing through the foramen transversarium at C6. Um, there is a, an additional article on the Facebook site by Tubbs, the triangle of the vertebral artery. There's equally a final triangle here in this region which we could include Uh, in the root of the neck, which we'd call the scalene triangle. (coughs) The boundaries are the lateral border of the scalenus anterior medially, the medial border of the scalenus medius laterally, and the first rib inferiorly. And that little area critically obviously contains the brachial plexus, which uh, runs between the scalenus anterior and the scalenus medius, and it also contains the third part, of the subclavian artery. There may be compressive symptoms here, uh, sort of neurovascular compressive symptoms, which depend on the precise anatomy of this potential space and the presence of a small related muscle in this region, just lateral to the scalenus posterior, the so-called scalenus minimus muscle, which is in a variable presentation of people with thoracic outlet syndrome. So three areas may contribute to that particular syndrome uh, of neurocompression or vascular neurocompression, uh, namely the so-called costoclavicular space, this scalene triangle in the way I've defined it, and the pectoralis minor space as well. Um, I've attached an article uh, on this particular subject by Rusnak Smith. In practical terms, the expansion of a scalenus minimus muscle, uh, perhaps a fusion of the scalenus anterior and medius, or a fracture of the first rib, uh, which is, of course, not an isolated or common feature, can provide an anatomical anomaly, along with a cervical rib, fused first and cervical rib, which can all result in a variable thoracic outlet syndrome generated from this region with attendant pressure on the subclavian vessels and the brachial plexus. I've included equally an article by Kikuta, called the triangles of the neck, a review of clinical and surgical applications. Now, that concludes in association with these particular diagrams, the triangles of the neck, the division from anterior and posterior, and then the subdivisions in the way we've described them. Um, The second area that I wanted to mention uh, is the cervical fasciae, the fasciae of the head and neck. And this will also lead to a small discussion or comment regarding the spaces. So we're turning our attention now to the cervical fasciae. To recap, in broad terms, the side of the neck is bounded by the clavicle below and above by the lower border of the mandible, the mastoid process of the temporal bone, and the superior nuchal line of the occipital bone. Posteriorly, this extends to the anterior border of the trapezius, Where it's divided obliquely by the sternocleidomastoid. The neck extends to the chin with the cervical vertebrae, that's the upper three or four, overlapped anteriorly by the facial skeleton. And that means that C1 is at the level of the tip of the mastoid process or equally at the level of the hard palate, with C2 at the level of the oral cavity and C3 at the level of the junction of the halves of the mandible. That's basically the structure. The investing layer of deep cervical fascia encloses the trapezius muscle and the sternocleidomastoid, covering the posterior triangle superficially. The deeper posterior compartment incorporates the vertebral column and the prevertebral muscles as the prevertebral fascia. Laterally, that fascia covers the muscles, forming the deep surface of the posterior triangle and ultimately getting out to the erector muscle posteriorly. And that leaves a smaller anterior compartment which houses the pharynx, larynx, upper esophagus, trachea and the associated muscles. Those are the infrahyoid muscles attached to the hyoid bone, the larynx and the sternum. With on each side the vertical neurovascular bundle of the neck which becomes the carotid sheath containing the carotid arteries, the internal jugular vein and the vagus. The area is also supplied by the cervical nerves supplying the skin and muscles of the neck and is continuous with the muscles of the tongue which explains why the 12th nerve the hypoglossal nerve and the cervical plexus particularly C1 are aligned with the ventral rami of these nerves emerging between the innermost and the inner muscle. So in the neck the brachial plexus comes from between the scalenus anterior and the scalenus medius and that is Embryologically, in much the same way as, for example, the intercostal neurovascular bundle or the thoracoabdominal nerves run between their respective innermost and internal muscle layers. So, in the chest, the neurovascular bundle runs between the internal and innermost intercostals in the thorax, and in the abdomen, between the transversus abdominis and the internal oblique muscles. So, in the neck, the nerves arise within the prevertebral fascia and they carry that sheath forward with them, as, for example, the cervico-axillary fascia of the axillary sheath, which is drawn out into the upper limb uh, and remains as a fascial sleeve. The phrenic nerve is also held by this prevertebral fascia. But exactly as in the chest and in the abdomen, where the neurovascular bundle runs between the internal and the innermost layers, this is effectively the same in the way the brachial plexus runs between the scalenus and anterior and the scalenus medius. The investing layer of deep cervical fascia, which we'll just call the investing fascia, is the homologue of scarpa's fascia on the thorax and the abdomen, or for example the deep fascia of the limbs, which splits, in this case in the neck around the sternocleidomastoid and the trapezius, although it's often deficient between them as has been shown in a paper by uh, Ming Zhang uh, recently in uh, uh, Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery. Um, the attachment of the investing layer is to all of the intervening bones, so that it attaches to the ligamentum nuchae. it can be described as running from there, and as well as attaching to the hyoid bone, which creates the sort of dewlap of the neck, and then attaching to the trapezius attachment from the external occipital protuberance along the curve of the superior nuchal line to the tip of the mastoid process. The area actually between the angle of the mandible and the tip of the mastoid process, as i mentioned before, is actually quite complicated because it splits to form the capsule of the parotid gland, with the superficial part of this fascia attached to the zygomatic arch where it's quite thick, and there it's known as the parotid fascia. The deep part of the parotid capsule extends deep to the parotid gland itself by attaching then to the styloid process and creating a specialised part of fascia which connects the angle of the mandible called the stylo-mandibular ligament. So some have also described a thickening of this fascia between the angle of the mandible and the anterior margin of the sternocleidomastoid, which has been called a so-called mandibulostylohyoid ligament, and that can be traced from the angle of the mandible to the lower part of the stylohyoid ligament. So there are some specialised fasciae that exist there, separating off the parotid gland from the submandibular gland or separating the submandibular gland from the styloid apparatus, and they're sometimes given names. The thickened parotid fascia of course, limits any case of suppurative parotitis, which may occur uh, in uh, mumps, for example, but can also occur in parotid stones, from extending to other areas of the neck. Below the investing layer extends into the pectoral fascia, and certainly it becomes the same as the clavipectoral fascia below the clavicle, attaching posteriorly to the spine of the scapula, and with the sternocleidomastoid attachments to the clavicle and the manubrium of the sternum. Across the midline, that houses the suprasternal notch or space, and it encloses the anterior jugular veins and the anastomosis between these, which is called the jugular arch when it's present. Above the clavicle, between the trapezius and the sternocleidomastoid, the fascia splits around the inferior belly of the omohyoid muscle, which binds as an intermediate tendon, the intermediate tendon area down to the clavicle, with the fascia extending behind the clavicle to embrace the subclavius muscle behind the clavicle, where it's pierced, that fascia at any rate is pierced by the external jugular vein, Uh, and as I've said, below the clavicle becoming the clavipectoral fascia. Uh, Clavipectoral fascia is discussed when we talk about the upper limb and the pectoralis minor. So that's basically the attachment of the investing layer of deep cervical fascia to all the surrounding bones there with a complex uh, arrangement between the angle of the mandible and the mastoid process. The second fascia that we see, as we've said, running across the posterior triangle is the prevertebral fascia, and it is, as it sounds, a tough membrane that limits the prevertebral muscles and extends from the base of the skull to the front of the longus capitus and across the base of the skull, the rectus capitis lateralis, and down to the limit of the longus collie muscle, which actually inserts at the bottom of the third thoracic vertebra. Now, one might not normally be interested in that fascia, except that it was the limitation, if you like, of a prevertebral abscess, which originated in the thoracic spine as a chronic osteomyelitis, as I say, as far down as T3. And this has historical significance. This is why it was named. This is actually the site of chronic tuberculous osteomyelitis. The commonest site of tuberculosis is actually in the thoracic spine. Next is the lumbar and then the cervical spine. And that was known typically as Pott's disease. It's not actually such an antiquated disease as we were still seeing patients with Pott's disease of the thoracic spine in the 1970s and 1980s when I was graduating and we were part of an MRC trial which included London and Hong Kong in deciding whether the new drug treatments such as isoniazid and rifampicin were better than surgical decompression. So it's not so long ago that people were looking at thoracic tuberculosis and it was in every specimen list in pathology departments and anatomy departments but that's the only real reason why the prevertebral fascia was named historically. The fascia extends sideways across the scalene and the levator scapulae and fades out laterally under the trapezius. There is a second podcast on the scalene and the levator scapulae. Further, into the posterior triangle, the prevertebral fascia attaches to the anterior tubercles of the cervical vertebrae, which means that the rami of the brachial plexus lie deep to it, with the lymph nodes of the region and the 11th cranial nerve, the accessory nerve, lying superficial to that fascia. The prevertebral fascia prolongs, extends over the subclavian vessels as the axillary sheath, with the subclavian artery deep And the subclavian vein is superficial, it's not affected by the fascia so that it can readily dilate. Where at the outer border of the first rib, both the artery and the vein then of course change their names, they become the auxiliary artery and vein. And that fascia is pierced by all of the cutaneous branches of the cervical plexus, they have to get out there superficially, and that includes the greater auricular, the transverse cervical, the lesser occipital and the supraclavicular. And part of the Scalini um, podcast is then followed by a discussion of the anatomy of the simical um, uh, plexus. Um, it's fair to say that the prevertebral fascia basically provides a fixed basis upon which the pharynx and the larynx and the esophagus, as well as the carotid sheaths, can then glide during movement of the neck and during swallowing. In summary, this fascia covers the longest capitis and longest collie muscles and the scalenes and the levator scapulae. It fuses posteriorly with the anterior longitudinal ligament in the midline of the vertebrae. The brachial plexus lies between the scalenes, as we've already said, in the so-called interscalene gap. Sometimes uh, that's called the hiatus scalenicus or the interscalene fissure, and that extends cordly to embrace the subclavius and become continuous below this to the clavipectoral fascia. Now dorsally, this fascia envelops the deep muscles of the back of the neck, which we haven't looked at, but it fuses equally with the investing layer of deep cervical fascia posteriorly. And it envelops also the sympathetic trunk and the phrenic nerve, so much so that the sympathetic chain can often be separately elevated from the prevertebral fascia. Medially, as I've said, there is a scaleno vertebral triangle, if you like, between the medial longus colli and the lateral scalenus anterior, where that prevertebral space connects with the epidural space quite close to the intervertebral foramen of C6. So all of these fasciae actually ultimately connect with one another, even though they're discrete. The third type of fascia in this region is the important pretracheal fascia. Or pretracheal fascia, however you want to pronounce it, and that allows the pharynx, the larynx, and the thyroid gland to glide, forming a layer between sliding surfaces and lying deep to the infrahyoid muscles, which are the strap muscles, which we mentioned: the sternohyoid anteriorly, the flatter, thinner sternothyroid deeply, and laterally the superior belly of the amohyoid. The upward attachment of the pretracheal fascia is actually limited by the attachment to the oblique line of the thyroid cartilage, um, that's the thyrohyoid muscle, uh, as well as to the hyoid bone in the midline. The fascia, the pretracheal fascia, splits around the thyroid glands, where at the isthmus it connects the lobes of the thyroid between the second to the fourth tracheal rings, where it's quite adherent. Laterally, this pretracheal fascia fuses with the carotid sheath and is pierced by the inferior thyroid artery as it comes up into the lower thyroid pole by running under the common carotid artery. Inferiorly, the fascia runs behind the brachiocephalic veins and it fuses, that's in the chest, with the fascia of the aortic root as well as with the fibrous pericardium. So again there's a connection between the pretracheal and effectively the aortic fascia. The fourth fascia of the neck is the carotid sheath. In the strictest sense, that's more actually a felt work of a real tissue rather than a distinct membrane surrounding the common carotid and the internal carotid as well as the internal jugular vein and the vagus nerve. It only thinly lies over the internal jugular vein, but it is there and it runs from the base of the skull at the margins of the carotid canal and then extends down to the adventitia of the aorta and the aortic arch. Where it runs under the sternocleidomastoid, it's adherent also to the pretracheal fascia, which blends with it, as I've said. There's also a loose areolar tissue behind the carotid sheath, and in this tissue, in front of the prevertebral fascia, lies the sympathetic trunk. Now, typically, pus, in paralent infections which tracks laterally from around the pharynx, will pass, therefore, behind the carotid sheath on one or both sides, and it can point in the posterior triangle, so-called laudable pus. Within the sheath, the common carotid artery bifurcates at the thyroid notch, or at about the C3-4 junction, but it can be higher at the greater horn of the hyoid bone, or even at the body of C3. The method in which the sheath disappears superiorly is actually debated a little bit, with the ansa cervicalis lying in very close relationship to the ventral aspect of the sheath, and with the common carotid artery, the IJV, the ECA, the ICA, having in some studies separate little internal tunnel sheaths. There's some debate about that and about the upper way in which the carotid sheath peters out. There are important clinical implications of the way we understand this fascia and fascial spaces. Uh, there is an important fascia intercarotica, if you like, which is also called the alar fascia, which has a variable thickness and crosses the median plane between the carotid sheaths, passing dorsally to the pharynx, but which confuse laterally with the so-called buccopharyngeal fascia at a point behind the pharynx. Now this ala fascia is often separate from the visceral fascia, at least in half of the cases dissected, and it follows the course of the carotid arteries ventrally, such that the visceral organs, that is the trachea and the esophagus, allowing with the fusion laterally of the buccopharyngeal fascia and a continuation of that space with the pretracheal space, can merge with the retropharyngeal space. Um, And this does not, however, continue into the so-called danger space, which lies dorsal to the intercarotid fascia. So there are these two separate spaces, a danger space, which is really a retropharyngeal space, and um, this other space, an ailer space in front. And that separate space actually lies behind another space as i've said which is the danger space the retropharyngeal space and immediately in front of the prevertebral space between the ala and the prevertebral divisions of the deep layer of the deep cervical fascia and that space therefore extends right down from the base of the skull through the posterior mediastinum down to the level of the diaphragm that is the alar space in front of the danger space the danger space is so-called because of its propensity to produce a descending, necrotizing mediastinitis, uh, which may therefore happen by, um, uh, firstly spread along the pretracheal route to the anterior mediastinum, which is the same route actually a retrosternal goiter can grow, or it can spread via the lateral pharyngeal route to the middle mediastinum, or the retropharyngeal route, via the danger space, as I've said, and then ultimately break through the alar fascia and get down into the posterior mediastinum, even as far as the diaphragm. Um, This type of infection was described in 1938 by Pears. The nature of the mediastinitis itself has also been graded, and I don't think we need to go into that, but there is a type 1 localised to the upper mediastinum Above the tracheal bifurcation, a type 2A extending to the lower anterior mediastinum, and a type 2B extending to both the anterior and the posterior mediastinum. And I've attached an article on that subject. I would like to mention that despite these four fasciae, the investing layer of deep cervical fascia, the prevertebral fascia, the pretracheal fascia, and the carotid sheath, there are another a couple of other fascia in the head and neck that we need to be aware of two other fascia really of relevance which are often forgotten the first is the pharyngobasilar fascia now that fascia fills the space between the base of the skull and the upper border of the pharynx and that's formed at this point by the superior constrictor which kind of hangs off the skull base a little like a hammock this pharyngobasal fascia, however, may be thought of as a dense, specialised thickening of the submucosa of the pharynx. It runs on the inside of the musculature, and it can be traced down to the level of the soft palate, so that it's effectively, if you like, the fourth cup of pharyngeal tissue that's stacked inside the three pharyngeal constrictors, the superior, the middle, and inferior constrictor, all of which are themselves stacked inside each other, like a series of flower pots, So the innermost layer is then filled in by this pharyngo-basilar fascia, and that fascia fills the space between the top of the superior constrictor's origin and the base of the skull. The fascia runs along all of the pharyngeal contours, starting from the pharyngeal tubicle in front of the foramen magnum, to which it's attached the midline thickening of pharyngeal muscle fusion at the back, which is called the pharyngeal raphae. And the reason why it's shaped like that is that it allows the pharynx, obviously, to distend. It has very little bony attachment, but just really attaching to its fellow in the midline as a pharyngeal raphae. The pharyngobasla fascia then passes over the top of the longus clappatus and the posterior margin of the foramen lastrum. So it gets right up to the skull base, and as far as the petrous part of the temporal bone just in front of the carotid canal. And there we have to think of it a little conceptually, adherent to the cartilaginous portion of the auditory tube, which fills that space between the origin of the superior constrictor and the base of the skull. And thence so on it attaches to the sharp posterior border of the medial pterygoid plate, down to a bulbous swelling at the bottom of that plate, which is called the pterygoid hamulus. And from the pterygoid hamulus attaching to the mandible is the so-called pterygomandibular raphae, which on one side gives origin to the superior constrictor, and then on the other side gives origin to the buccinator muscle. So the fascia too, like the superior, that's the pharyngobasilar fascia, like the superior constrictor, is actually, as I've said, suspended from the skull base, from one medial pterygoid plate to the other. And it's reinforced posteriorly by that pharyngeal raphae, being designed to hold open rather toughly the nasopharynx permanently for breathing. The lower edge of the basilar fascia lies at what we recognise as a place called Passavant's Ridge, which is conceptually level with the hard palate inside the superior constrictor. And it's like a little muscular or fascial purse string designed to close off the nasopharynx During swallowing, it's the way the soft palate uh, becomes uh, not adherent but adjacent to the posterior pharyngeal wall. And um, there are a couple of additional points that one would make as well. At the apex of the petrous temporal bone in front of the carotid canal, there's a small lateral recess of the pharynx which gives origin to the levator pallati muscle, and that makes that muscle entirely. Intrapharyngeal, the cartilaginous portion, as I've said before, of the auditory tube or the eustachian tube, enters the nasopharynx above that pharyngobasilar fascia, but it's adherent to it. There's a small triangle hanging above the hammock, that then transmits the auditory tube, but also the glossopharyngeal nerve and the levator palati. The ascending palatine artery is in this region as is the palatine branch of the ascending pharyngeal artery. And that little area that is between the base of the skull and the origin of the superior constrictor that contains all those little structures is called the sinus of Morgani. Very occasionally, there's a nasopharyngeal carcinoma in that region, and that can extend laterally to involve that sinus. And also, um, uh, very close to V3, run near the foramen ovale, which sits just in front of that territory. And that results in a so-called trotter's triad, which is one of conductive deafness because the eustachian tube is obstructed, an ipsilateral immobility of the soft palate, and often, because it's close to the foramen ovale, a mandibular trigeminal neuralgia. So that if we understand the anatomy of this little complex region, That actually, filled with the pharyngobasilar fascia, produces a particular type of anatomical syndrome, in this case, trotter's triad. The only other fascia that we've got to talk about is the buccopharyngeal fascia, and that's on the other side of the pharyngeal muscles and buccinator. That lies on the outer surface, or other surface, of the pharyngeal constrictor and over the buccinator muscle, and connects this fascia deeply with the superficial facial fascia, the buccopharyngeal fascia fuses with the periosteum on the posterior alveolar surface of the maxilla as well as the pterygoid process's inner plate and it extends into the tunica adventitia of the esophagus. The fascia also forms part of the pterygomandibular mandibular rough, as I've mentioned and it lies between the hamulus and the posterior edge of the myelohyoid line Whereas as I've said already the buccinator runs forward the superior constrictor runs backwards, taking origin from the same uh, structure. So I just wanted to mention that to uh, summarise, we have the investing layer, we have the pretracheal and prevertebral layers, and they're divisible into external, middle, and deep layers. The middle layer really is the pretracheal fascia, and that can also be divided into a muscular and a visceral layer. I wouldn't particularly divide them in this way but there are some books that describe it in that manner. The deep fascia is superficial to the superficial cervical fascia which is integral to the subcutaneous tissue investing the platysma. The attachment of the investing layer is to the ligamentum nuci and the vertebral spines across the front of the hyoid coursing around the submandibular gland near the inferior surface of the mandible. In the suprahyoid area The layers invest the digastric and stylohyoid muscles with an extension coursing superiorly to envelop the parotid gland until it then extends from the mastoid process onto the superior nuchal line. We're really repeating the attachments of what we said. The visceral division of the pretracheal fascia contains within it the thyroid and parathyroid glands and incorporates the trachea and the esophagus. Superiorly, this attaches to the thyroid cartilage with the posterior segment of this fascia extending between the carotid sheaths and running between the esophagus and the lateral lobes of the thyroid gland, where it's referred to as the buccopharyngeal fascia because of its anatomic relation to the pharynx and the buccinator muscle. Behind this fascia is the retropharyngeal space, which we've spoken about, the danger space, and this continues inferiorly as the covering of the trachea and the esophagus. Posterior to the buccopharyngeal fascia and anterior to the ala fascia is that retropharyngeal space. Posterior to the ala fascia and anterior to the preliteral fascia lies the danger space. The bucopharyngeal and ala fascia join one another inferiorly at about the T1, T2 level, and I've left an article on that subject. Spaces can be artificially divisible also by the hyoid bone. Spaces spanning the entire neck include, as we've said, the retropharyngeal space, the danger space, the prevertebral space, and the space within the carotid sheath. The spaces bound inferiorly by the hyoid bone include the submandibular, a pharyngomaxillary space, a masticator space, parotid and peritonsillar spaces. And I only mention these not because they are separable in a sense, but that they do appear in various Anatomy textbooks, and as a result, we can see that it's a more complex region than initially thought. Um, I think that we can leave it at that. There are, we, is a separate podcast which discusses the attachments of the sternocleidomastoid, the trapezius, the prevertebral muscles, the scaleni, and the levator scapulae, along with the um, spinal accessory nerve and the structure and branches of the cervical plexus and lymph nodes of the neck.